0: It's the summer of 1993. Evidence is piled up, all of it incriminating the Menendez brothers in the double homicide of their parents. Surprisingly, their attorneys don't try to argue otherwise. Just weeks before the trial began, lawyers for Eric and Lyle Menendez dropped a bombshell. Defense lawyers made their announcement in court as reporters listened from the gallery. The brothers did an about face
1: they went from publicly denying any knowledge of the killings to admitting they pulled the triggers. The reason was equally shocking. The brothers said they killed in
0: self-defense after years of sexual and emotional abuse by their parents. Leslie Abramson, with her indignant New Yorker wit, was going to argue that a lifetime of abuse could justify parricide. This turn of events astounded the nation, but not Pamela Bazanich.
2: I wasn't surprised by it.
0: She was a seasoned prosecutor by then. And now that she's retired, she has no problem speaking her mind about this case.
2: I was trying to think of the worst thing possible that you could say about a parent to justify killing them. And that seemed to me to be pretty much the worst thing.
0: Not only that, but this kind of defense had worked for one of Leslie Abramson's other clients. That client was a teenage boy whose father was a powerful news executive. Leslie Abramson argued that he murdered his father because of years of abuse, and that defense saved him from prison. The parallels between the cases were uncanny. Sexual abuse might be the worst thing you could say about a parent to justify murdering them. That's what Bazanich thought. But what if Eric and Lyle were the real victims? What if abuse did explain what pushed these brothers to the edge? So far, the only other explanation had been inheritance, but were these sons in so much of a rush that they were willing to kill? It would be up to a jury to decide. I'm your host, Vinny Politan, and this is Murder and the Menendez Brothers, a court TV mystery. I'm a former prosecutor and journalist and now lead anchor for Court TV. Today, episode three, The Trial. Last we heard, Judge Weisberg was still unsure if he should allow cameras into the courtroom. Now, of course, we know the Menendez brothers' trial was televised. We wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't. But the lawyers didn't know Judge Weisberg was still weighing the pros and cons.
3: The arguments in favor of cameras in the courtroom are, frankly, that under our Constitution, trials are supposed to be open. And practically, we have no other way to do it other than cameras.
0: That's Lori Levinson a professor at Loyola Law School.
3: The downside of cameras in the courtroom is that it makes it more of a spectacle and that people might act differently in the courtroom and the court may not control those actions.
0: When Judge Weisberg met with the defense and prosecution before the trial, he told them cameras were off the table. But then... Welcome. Good morning.
4: Um... I'll I'll be discussing a few things with you um, before
0: we get started. That's the judge talking to the jury. He looks the part. He's wearing a black robe and wire-rimmed glasses. When he speaks, he scans over the jury. Judge Weisberg begins by giving them instructions on how this trial will work. Despite objections from both the prosecution and defense... Uh, There will be, uh, throughout the trial, a television camera in the courtroom. If the lawyers were surprised, they didn't show it. Prosecutor Pamela Bozanich didn't bat an eye. But when we talked to her for this podcast, she told us,
2: Well, I didn't know that we were going to have cameras in the courtroom until I walked into court to make my opening statement. The judge came out and he was wearing his pink shirt, which was what he wore when he wanted to look good. And I knew then that we were sunk. I knew that it was going to be televised.
0: It's unclear why Judge Weisberg decided to allow cameras, but in his instructions to the jury, it was business as usual.
4: Um, it's just another way that the public has access to the proceedings, and it should not in any
0: way influence you in how you go about your job. Now that was a tall order. He was asking the jury to act like a camera wasn't broadcasting every bit of drama in the courtroom. Your job is to concentrate on the evidence as it's being presented during the course of the trial. He assured the jury they would never be filmed in the courtroom, and he told them to avoid the media. It's very important that you not be exposed to
4: anything outside the courtroom that has anything to do with this case whether it's uh, news coverage conversations discussions overhearing what somebody else might say anything
0: think about this in 1993 most jurors could easily comply they didn't have constant news notifications in their pockets it was simpler avoid newsstands don't watch the local news but this trial was different it became the talk of the nation That meant these jurors had to avoid discussions about this case at the supermarket, at church, at barbecues. Not easy. And outside the courtroom, the media were everywhere. The chaos on the steps of the courthouse was a distraction and an obstacle. Lori Levinson, the law professor, went to some of the Menendez trial. She remembers the frenzy outside.
3: Well, first of all, when you approach the courthouse, there were tons of people, including reporters, but non-reporters as well, right there on the stairs of the courthouse. And then they filled the hallway outside the courtroom. There were plenty of reporters and everybody wanted their soundbite.
0: Reporters were supposed to stay out of the way. Judge Weisberg made sure of it. They could only interview people in a designated area at the back of the courthouse. But that simply wasn't happening. Defense attorneys Abramson and Morrissey were incensed.
5: You have 10, 15, 20 people with cameras and microphones, and you can't walk. It was the same thing today. You couldn't get down the stairs, you were
6: surrounded by people. And the media chased us from the back, chased us all the way down the side, continuing to ask questions, and it is
5: an incredibly frightening experience.
0: You couldn't throw a subpoena down the hall without hitting a reporter, a photographer, and a TV producer. And it was like that from the beginning to the end. This made it especially difficult to find jurors. They needed to be impartial and uninfluenced by almost four years of nonstop coverage of the Beverly Hills killings. Jury selection often takes a few days. For this trial, it took weeks. Judge Weisberg had to gather a pool of almost 700 prospective jurors. It was fascinating during the jury selection because every person who came into the courtroom had heard about the case, knew something about the case they had read uh, about or seen on TV. Robert Rand was the author of the Menendez murders. He had the pleasure of attending every single day of jury selection. And so that that was a very tough situation for the defense where you have a case that People already have some information, and most of it was pretty negative information uh, because the only people talking for three years were the prosecution putting out the greedy rich kid's point of view. And for this case, they didn't just need 18 jurors. They needed 36. You might not remember, but each Menendez brother had their own jury, one to decide Eric's fate, the other, Lyle's. Two juries in one trial. The judge felt it would be fair that way. In the end, most jurors had seen some news about the Menendez brothers, it was unavoidable. But going forward, the judge wanted them to steer clear of the media circus. That first day in the courtroom, when Judge Weisberg allowed cameras, it raised the stakes. Now the lawyers would have to argue their case in front of two juries and the millions watching on TV. No pressure. All right then, I'll now turn to the
4: lawyers and uh, they may make their opening statements. First, the prosecution makes an opening statement and then
0: the defense. Prosecutor Pamela Bazanich faced the jury. She was calm and resolute. With the camera on her, she began.
7: On August the 20th of 1989, at approximately 11.47 p.m., Beverly Hills Police Dispatcher Christina Nye received a 911 call
0: Zanich had to paint a clear picture of that night for the jury.
7: On the line was Lyle Menendez, who sounded hysterical, reporting that, quote, someone shot my mom and my dad, end quote. You will hear that 911 tape, and you will hear the emotion manifested in that phone
0: call. After all, it was the first time they would be hearing a detailed account of how the murder went down. She went on to explain the brothers' motive.
7: Shortly after the killings, Lyle Menendez began to spend money. A lot of money.
0: These were greedy, rich kids who wanted their inheritance early.
7: Lyle Menendez told Dr. Oziel that his uncle had suspected that the family computer contained another will, which would have disinherited the brothers.
0: Remember, Dr. Oziel was the brothers' therapist.
7: Lyle explained to Dr. Oziel that he had arranged to have the computer's hard disk erase to avoid the possibility of a second will. The computer was erased on August the 31st, 1989.
0: 11 days after the murders, the brothers erased their father's last will and testament. It ensured that Lyle and Eric would get their money.
7: The defendants went on to tell Dr. O'Zeal that they killed their parents out of hatred and a desire to be free of their father's domination and impossible standards. The defendants did not tell Dr. Oziel, during these two sessions, that the killings were done in self-defense, or that they had suffered any physical or sexual abuse.
0: Zanich wanted to prove that Abramson's team made up the defense and made up the abuse.
7: The people's case will take less than a month to present to you. During that time, we will prove to you that Lyle Menend has planned this murder, provided false identification for the purchase of two shotguns, set up an alibi, acquired ammunition, repeated the alibi to the police shortly after the crime, and then set off to spend the money which he had acquired through the killings of his parents. Based upon this evidence, it will become apparent that this murder was unlawful, unjustified, and wholly premeditated, and that it was accomplished through a conspiracy into which Lyle Menendez entered with his brother, and that but for a few mistakes they made, this was almost the perfect murder.
0: Lyle and Eric Menendez killed their parents out of hatred and greed. Nothing else. That's what the prosecution would argue. Ms. Abramson for the defense. Thank you,
6: Governor.
0: Leslie Abramson set a large stack of papers on the lectern. It was her opening statement.
6: This is large, but the print is very big. So it isn't going to take as long as it looks.
0: She flipped through her pages to make sure everything was in order. Then she began.
6: By telling you now what we intend to prove later, it is our hope, and it is our expectation, that you will do what you have promised to do during the jury' selection process. You will keep an open mind. You will wait to hear both sides of the case. And: Objection,
3: you... Your Honor, this is argumentative.
0: That was Lester Kuriyama from the prosecution. Not even a minute into Abramson's opening statement, things got combative. Ms. Abramson, you
4: are going afield here. Let's go to what you expect the evidence to be rather than how it relates to the legal theories.
6: I wasn't going to relate it to the legal theories. Okay, well, you're going beyond
4: what you anticipate here. Let's go on to the evidence. All right. Abramson shuffled her
0: stack of papers.
6: The only question in this case is why did these killings occur? There is no issue as to who killed Jose and Mary Louise Menendez. Why they were killed is what the focus of all of our evidence will be on. Having fired two shotguns in the middle of a residential neighborhood on a quiet night, Eric and Lyle Menendez expected an immediate police response. They waited. When no one came, They decided to leave and pretend that they had not been home at the time of the shooting.
0: Abramson eyed the jury earnestly, with intensity. She was an experienced orator.
6: Over the next weeks and months, Eric Menendez was torn by guilt, by remorse, by horror over what he had done. He had lost a tremendous amount of weight. He was repeatedly reliving the killings in the way that some Vietnam War veterans relive their experiences. The proof of this was that he told the police months later that he could still smell the smoke.
0: As further proof of Eric's remorse, Abramson brought up his confession. In fact, Eric confessed to the crime twice. First to his best friend, Craig Signorelli, then to his therapist, but he didn't mention sexual abuse either time.
6: He did not tell them the true motivation for the killings. To do that, he would have had to reveal the shameful, in his opinion, secrets that he had spent most of his life concealing. For 12 years, between the ages of six and 18, my client, Eric Menendez, was sexually molested by his father. Jose Menendez's obvious purpose was to use his child's body to satisfy his lust. But this sexual exploitation of his young son was also part of a more pervasive characteristic of Mr. Menendez. His absolute need to control and to manipulate the people around him.
0: Abramson didn't mince her words. She was saying... Jose Menendez was the villain, not the men who murdered him. Then she went after Dr. Oziel, the prosecution's key witness.
6: We will challenge through evidence in this case, the accuracy of the information given to you by El Jerome Oziel in this trial. We will present evidence to you to prove that this man operates on his own agenda that he has motives to lie about what he was told by the Menendez brothers, and that he has a track record of lying, manipulating, and controlling people for his own selfish purposes.
0: Abramson ended her opening statement with a direct attack on the prosecution.
6: Because his parents were wealthy, the prosecution tells you he did it for the money. What do they say when poor kids kill?
0: If court cases are battles, this one was about to get very bloody. Abramson was out on a limb with this defense. Back in 1993, this was a relatively new concept for courts. The idea that a victim of abuse could murder in self-defense. The first time this defense succeeded in court was just three years earlier. Claiming abuse as a legal defense isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. You have to prove that you have a reasonable fear for your life. Until this point, it had largely been applied to women who killed their abusive husbands. That's why it's called the Battered Women Defense. The Menendez case was about two killers who had allegedly been abused as children. The defense had to prove that Lyle and Eric feared for their lives when they killed their parents. The prosecution had to prove the brothers were liars. America couldn't turn away. Watching these arguments play out on TV practically became a national pastime. Viewers got all the highlights and nightly recaps on Court TV. Here's Lori Levinson, the law professor again.
3: You put the personalities of the defense lawyers, the personality of the prosecutors and the judges. This had everything you would expect to see on a ready for TV movie.
0: Former L.A. Times reporter John Johnson said he heard from binge viewers. I recall people talking about how they watched it all morning and all afternoon, and
1: uh, that was a little bit of a surprise to me. To not only that Court TV was covering it, and not only that you know there there were people who were tuning in, but they would be riveted to it all day long.
0: When the jury was dismissed, the court of public opinion stayed in session all day every day. This was more riveting than most soap operas. It was reality TV, packed with emotion and the high stakes of a capital case. With so much public scrutiny, Leslie Abramson tried to portray Eric and Lyle as sympathetic young boys to the jury. Leslie Abramson made sure they dressed every day in, a, in you know, these preppy sweaters. And I think it was even made a
1: joke of on late night uh, talk shows. So it was supposed to make them look young and vulnerable rather than if they were wearing a suit and tie. But with the cashmere
0: sweater on and their hair combed ever so deeply, they looked very Boy Scoutish, which is what Leslie was going for. Abramson could control what her clients wore in court, but the impressive set of witnesses for the prosecution was devastating. All of Eric and Lyle's friends testified against them. Friendship transcends a lot of things, but homicide's not one of them. I felt it was my duty. That's Lyle's best friend, Glenn Stevens. He met Lyle in high school, and they even ended up at Princeton together. I felt very close to him. I considered
1: him my best friend, but uh, after the murders, he changed.
0: Stevens felt the relationship became more transactional. He was being
1: condescending towards me on several occasions.
0: And over time, his suspicions grew. Stevens remembers Lyle telling him about finding his father's will on the family computer.
1: He wanted to read what was in the, the will because he knew that his father was drafting a new will and he wanted to see if, if he could read what was in there. They opened the files and found nothing legible inside. They couldn't be opened, they couldn't be accessed for some reason. And he told the computer expert uh, that he had hired just to erase the contents.
7: Did he tell you why he wanted the contents erased?
1: He said, well, my father wasn't very happy with me at the time, and since the will that was found gave me and my brother everything, uh, I had
0: nothing to lose by erasing this one. I'm not sure if I would have been in it. That didn't look good. Eric's best friend, Craig Signorelli, took the stand too, but reluctantly. I wasn't sure at the time if what he was telling me the truth and I did not want to be the one to turn him in. Eric liked to play mind games with Signorelli, but one of those games felt a little too real. He said that um,
1: he went back outside and his brother was standing there with two shotguns and said, let's do it. And they walked inside and Eric said he looked in and saw his parents sitting on the couch and Lyle swung the door open and shot his father and looked at Eric
0: and said, shoot, mom. And Eric said he shot his mom and she was standing up and yelling. At the urging of police, Signorelli told Detective Zoller everything he knew. And then there was Lyle's former roommate, Donovan Goodrow. The two were best friends in Lyle's first year at Princeton, but they had a falling out shortly before the murders. Goodrow was kicked out of their room at Princeton. But it wasn't until Goodrow was on the road to New York that he noticed something of his was missing.
8: I pulled over on uh, Route 1 because I didn't have my wallet with me.
7: And sometime after that, were you contacted by the Beverly Hills Police Department?
8: Uh, Yes, I was. In March of 1990, they asked for my whereabouts um, on the date of August 18th, 1989.
0: That's the day Lyle and Eric used Donovan Goodrow's driver's license to buy their shotguns in San Diego.
7: Did you buy any shotguns during that period of time?
0: No, I didn't. In fact, Eric Menendez fit all the descriptors on Goodrow's license. They were both about six foot one and 165 pounds. They even looked a little alike. To the gun store clerk, it was just a run-of-the-mill transaction.
6: When the customer came into the store, he wanted to buy two of the shotguns and pointed at him and I recall vaguely asking if he wanted to see the guns, and I from there I just went in the back, brought the two guns out, we did the paperwork, um, the person went to the front to pay the cashier.
0: And just like that, the brothers were armed.
4: It's a pump-action Mossberg Model 500 AB shotgun in 12-gauge.
0: That's Beverly Hills Deputy Dwight Van Horn Police never found the actual weapons Eric and Lyle bought, but he's demonstrating for the jury how these kinds of shotguns actually work.
4: First thing you do is load a round of ammunition into the magazine, chamber a round of ammunition from the magazine, and make sure the safety was off.
0: It was almost theatrical. The prosecution probably just wanted this gun show to demonstrate just how deliberate the brothers had been as killers. Pull the trigger, the firing
4: pin fires, the shell fires. To fire again, it takes a distinct act of pumping the pump slide or the slide all the way to the rear,
0: then running the slide forward again. But you could argue that a gun tutorial wasn't really necessary. The defense did just that.
6: The question is, do they have a right to parade this shotgun in front of the jury for the dramatic impact? That's what this is about. There's nothing complicated in describing how to put a shell into a shotgun. Even I can put a shell into a shotgun. This is just an excuse to bring in the ugly gun. That's all it is.
0: Judge Weisberg disagreed. The people's theory is that there
4: is a uh, premeditated uh, killing here and the reloading process could very well reflect upon the mental state of the individuals involved.
0: He said it was relevant to the Menendez brothers' capacity to commit the crime. Maybe you're wondering why the prosecution is going through so much trouble to connect the brothers to the crime. Is it just a show for the jury? Haven't the Menendez brothers already admitted to killing their parents?
2: I had to prove it was a murder, and I had to prove that they did it. And even if the defense attorneys stand up an opening statement and say their clients did it, I still have an obligation to prove it.
0: That's Prosecutor Pamela Bazanich again.
2: Hypothetically, if I hadn't proven that they had done it, then the judge could have dismissed the case for lack of proof before the defense even started. Um, it's, it's highly technical, but it would have happened. This judge would have done it if I hadn't you know, crossed the T's and dotted the I's.
0: More than that, prosecutors wanted the jury to see through the candy-colored sweaters and sob stories. They wanted them to see sociopaths, even though the judge wouldn't let them use that word. Yes, he barred a word. The court, based upon what has been presented to
4: me, <coughs> finds that the use of the term so- sociopath um, is prejudicial, And there's no need to use the
0: specific word. The defense argued and the judge agreed that the term sociopath was too loaded. So the prosecution and their witnesses had to show that the Menendez brothers were aggressive liars who didn't respect social norms and had no conscience. But, you know, not use the term sociopath. They had the evidence to do it, but no amount of preparation could prevent Leslie Abramson from mounting a powerful counterattack. For every friend who testified against the murderers, Abramson brought a family member who knew about the abuse. First, Marta Menendez-Cano. She's Eric and Lyle's aunt, their father's sister. She remembers how Jose treated Eric when he was only two years old.
5: Well, with Eric, it was totally ignored unless he was doing something that Jose didn't like. The instant the father would touch him, he would start crying. say, stop crying. I tell you to stop crying. Why can't you stop crying? And he kept on yelling at the kid, and of course Eric would cry more. And then he would get completely frustrated and just send him to his bed, to his room, and just stop right there. He just couldn't stand it.
0: Jose wouldn't let Marta console him, no matter how much he cried.
5: Jose was a very strong character. You just could not go against Jose's wishes. There's no way. I mean, the tone of his voice and, and the aggressiveness of the way he said things was very intimidating. You just did not dare to do anything he didn't want you to do.
0: As Eric and Lyle started school and began playing sports, according to Marta, Jose became more demeaning. If Eric or Lyle didn't succeed...
5: He would tell him he was a CC, that uh, it was about time that he became a Menendez, that uh, he was not worth his last name, that uh, he should be ashamed of his, of his average, mediocre performance.
0: Jose wanted them to be athletes and scholars. He was laser-focused on his sons, so much so that his own wife felt left out. On the stand, Marta testified that Kitty didn't hide her hostility towards her children. Once, she talked about it in front of Lyle.
5: She told me she wished they would not have never been born because they had broken her marriage.
0: Lyle would never forget those words. Marta Cano and her son Andy lived near the Menendez family, but they didn't visit much. Marta said Jose wouldn't let them. Cousins Eric and Andy did become friends, though. They were around the same age, 12 and 10. Uh,
8: I remember it being wintertime, and there were fields behind my house, agricultural fields.
0: That's Andy Kano.
8: That's right. We had toy guns, and we were pretending like we were running from an army. We would play war games pretty often.
0: They ran into the woods to hide from their pretend enemies. They leaned up against a tree and got quiet. That's where Eric asked Andy a question.
8: He asked me if... Uh, my dad ever gave me massages.
0: Andy didn't know what Eric meant by massages. A warning here, what he says is disturbing.
6: Was there something else he told you about the massages? Like where they were? Yes, he did. Okay. What did he say about where the massages were?
8: Well, he told me his father was massaging his dick.
6: He used that word?
0: Yes, he did. Both were too young to understand what it meant. Andy suggested he could ask his mom, but Eric told him not to. What uh,
8: I do remember very specifically was him asking me to make a promise to him, never to reveal that to anybody. And uh, he was saying it very seriously and I took it very seriously.
0: Before the trial, Andy never spoke a word about the incident. And he wasn't the only cousin who kept quiet. Diane Vander Mullen is Kitty's niece. She occasionally stayed with the Menendez family when she was a teenager. They had two spare beds in their basement. Lyle was nine when he walked into her room.
6: I
8: thought he was there to say goodnight. And he started asking me if he could sleep down there because there was two single beds. Initially, I uh, it pretty much just brushed him off because I wasn't taking him seriously. And what happened next? Um, he proceeded to indicate to me by touching himself uh, down and and saying that his dad and him had been touching each other down there. I went and got Kitty and uh, brought her downstairs and told her what was going on. And what happened when Kitty came down? She didn't believe me. And she took Lyle and, and brought him
0: back upstairs. She never brought it up again. These stories laid the foundation of Eric and Lyle's defense. Marticano Cano painted a picture of a domineering father and a mother who resented her own children for merely existing. The cousins testified the sexual abuse was burned into their memory. Not even the prosecution could condone what had happened to Lyle and Eric in the Menendez house. She didn't admit it at the time, but looking back, Pamela Bazanich can't deny it.
2: When you have two sons capable of murder, there's something wrong at home.
0: In a recent interview, she remembered hearing horror stories about Jose.
2: First of all, I couldn't find anyone to say anything nice about him except for his secretary. Everybody else thought it was a benefit to civilization that Jose Menendez had been killed.
0: If there was a way to prove that the sexual, physical, and emotional abuse was undeniable, it might justify the murder of Jose Menendez... But what about Kitty Menendez?
2: The story of Kitty Menendez got swallowed up in the story of the brothers, their phony abuse, and the story of the hideousness of Jose. But she was the true victim of, in the family. She was as much a victim of the husband as, as, in fact, more of a victim of the husband, had more reason to want to kill him. So I think that her story is just, just mm-hmm. very sad.
0: At first, the case of the Menendez family was clear-cut. Lyle and Eric were cold, calculated killers. Greedy, rich kids. Their friends even seemed to agree. They couldn't recognize who the brothers had become. But then the defense began to peel back the layers. Eric and Lyle were living in a gold-plated cage, taunted and abused by their father, unloved by their mother. Maybe it was only a matter of time before they snapped. For most Americans, this level of family dysfunction was hard to comprehend. Now it was on TV.
3: Yeah, I think one of the reasons that this case was so sensational is because it discussed sexual abuse. And at the time, that wasn't something that was particularly openly discussed in cases, especially when it came to family violence.
0: These stories from friends and family only scratched the surface. Next time on Murder and the Menendez Brothers, the most controversial witnesses take the stand. The brother's therapist testifies. Based
1: upon what Lyle had just said to me, he had basically told me that he was gonna go off to discuss uh, murdering me with his brother.
0: And Eric and Lyle take the stand themselves.
4: I just dismissed what happened to me as something that happens to the little boys. And at 18, I figured my dad would let him go. I just specifically remember
1: him saying to Dad, you're not going to touch my little brother, you're not going to touch Eric, you're never going to touch him again.
0: That and more next time.
1: Murder in the Menendez Brothers, a core TV mystery, is hosted by Vinnie Politan. It's produced by Janaki Mehta and Tana Robbins of Neon Hum Media. Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. The executive producer at Neon Hum Media is Jonathan Hirsch. For Kate's Network Original Productions, Sophia Kelly is the senior vice president and Sean Cameron is the senior director. Production assistance is provided by Kate Mishkin and Haley Fager. Special thanks to Natalie Wren. You can see Court TV's complete coverage of the first Menendez trial in the Trials on Demand section on our website. CourtTV.com.